We're in uh, the last couple of weeks, the last throws of our series in Colossians, A Place in the Sun. Um, Let me just give you a bit of a recap. Um, You've slept uh, since then, obviously. Um, This church in Colossae was established. Uh, Grace is just this marvelous story of this church that pops up. Uh, This guy, Epaphroditus, Epaphras, no, Epaphroditus, somebody else. Epaphras, thank you, (laughs) a few nods. Uh, Here's this story. And, uh, you know, here's Paul preach and rush, rushes off and this church is born. It's, it's a miracle and it embraces Christianity, but it embraces a bunch of other things as well. Remember, we, we talked a lot at the start about the Roman Empire, about the world getting a lot smaller and they just grabbed all of a load of ideas and sort of ran with them all. And then Paul writes this letter to say, look, what you need to know is it's all about Jesus Christ. If you're centered on him, you'll be okay. Jesus is enough. Then we get to the end of the letter and there are some encouragements. There are some, there is some fallout for the fact that Jesus is enough, that God is one in Christ. And one part of that fallout, maybe as you've seen in the text, is that his people need to get on terribly well together. Do you see that in the text? That his people, not that they need to, that they're gonna get on terribly well together. We'll be looking at the wise and wherefores of that. And as you sat there, maybe you're thinking, you know, if you're new to church or you've not been to church for a while, why should I be bothered about how, about any, any group of people get on? Why is that? Why should I not just be bothered about how I get on with the people in my little family or how the UN gets on? Those are critical things. But why should I be bothered about how church gets on? Why is that significant? Why does it matter that we love one another? There's loads of one another's in this passage that we're going to look at. Friends, the TV show Friends, sometimes when you start a little run of an anecdote, I don't know if you have this, Paul, occasionally I will, I will start one off and I'll look up and I'll realize I'm heading down a blank pathway. I've started the anecdote and there's maybe two people that have heard of it. But when I talk about the TV show Friends, I reckon I'm on, I'm on safe ground here. I reckon if you've not, I can almost flip it around and go, if you've not seen this, where, where have you been for the last little while? Friends, everybody knows about Friends. It's this hugely popular um, TV show. 52 million Americans watched the last episode of Friends. I don't know how many the total population is of America. Huge, hugely popular show. Funny in English, hilarious in Spanish, if you watch it dubbed. Really, even funnier. Joey is hilarious. Huge show, and... Despite the fact, I don't know if you've watched it back recently, despite the fact that it's a, if you watch it back now, it's a little bit sexist. In fact, you know, you would never write, you would never write Joey Tribbiani now, never in a million years. It's a little bit sexist, it's a little bit homophobic. Chandler looks terrible. He used to, I remember growing up, he used to be this stunningly handsome dude. He looks, he's out, you know, he's so dated. In a lot of respects, it's so dated. And yet... Friends in the UK was the most streamed Netflix show in 2018. The most streamed. Netflix paid $80 million to keep it. Why? Why is, why is there this appeal? Yes, so you go yes straight away. Somebody who, who appreciates a comedy, you can see that the gags are written. If, if, you've, if you study this, the gags are written awesomely. There's this thread that goes through and you reach the punchline and you don't even know why you're laughing so hard. The canned laughter is kind of superb. The characters are likable. There's, there's lots to like about it. But I think that the genius, 
is, and this is particularly for teens to 40s, maybe 50s, no, it's, it's relevant for everybody, is that we, we, we don't just watch it and laugh along with it. It lets us think that we can join the gang. There is this perfect community, this awesome, really funny, really engaging community, and we get to think that we might just be able to join that. If you, if you watch, so especially the scene in Central Perk, I think it's called, where the, the couches sort of bend out towards each other. You feel like you could kind of sit in amongst it. You feel like you could kind of join in, and they kind of welcome you in, and then you kind of laugh along with the kind of laughter. But not only that, and they do this, this is so clever. Each of the, I'm sure you will have done this, particularly if you're in my age bracket, you will have done this. You pick a character that you can be. Do you know what I mean? You, and with your little friends, you look around and you go, oh, he's a bit like, he's a bit like him, he's a bit like her, they're a bit like this. And you see, it's, it's genius what they do. You have this idyllic, coffee-supping, cool life-living New York, York lifestyle, and you sit on your couch in Castle Ponte or wherever, and you get to kind of join in. That is the... I think that's the genius of it. You, you get to go home and you get to be Ross or Chandler or whoever it is. You get to join in with that thing. I think perfect community, it's not only something that our world likes. It's not only something that we can laugh along with. It's something that we groan to join in with. When we see it, when we see these trendy Americans drinking coffee that's not come over to the UK yet, having a laugh, living this cool, trendy lifestyle. We see that and we don't just go, oh, that's good for you. We go, oh, I'd love to join in with that. That's why Facebook works so well, because essentially that's what it is. We get to be part of a, we get to present our, the best of ourselves, the best pictures we've got of ourselves. We get to see the best pictures of other people and we get to like them and this community that exists and we get to be a little bit of a part of that. Maybe you sat there Maybe you sat there thinking about church and thinking this, this crowd, this community has got, you know, maybe, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you come along and you think, this has got nothing for me. There's nothing, there's no allure here. Maybe you're, you've been a Christian for a long time and you think, there's no way I'm getting any friendlier with any of these people. I'm not going to let that happen. I'm quite comfortable with my own level of social interaction. I'm comfortable with all of that news from God in heaven. I think this is what the Bible will tell us about our God. I think he says, I'm going to pierce the hearts of people on earth as they see me made real in the communities of my people. The world is going to look in on these little communities and get a glimpse of God. So I'm not making this up. Um, if you've got Bibles or gadgets or you just want to let the Word of God uh, shout out over you, Genesis 22, verse 18, God speaks to a guy called Abraham, Father Abraham. He says this, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. God speaks to this guy he makes a promise to him, and it's not just to him. He says, you're going to become a father of a great nation, and he's an old guy at this point. And not only this great nation is going to be great, 
the world's going to look on it and see it great. Let's see this story progress. Deuteronomy 6, uh, 5 to 8. So if you want to listen back, if you don't, if you want to sort of check this all out, you can listen back to the sermon. Always recommend that and check these uh, verses out or check them on your phones just now. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5 to 8. This is Israel on the, on the fringes of the promised land in terms of the story of the Bible. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them the way that the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? This is the story building. God establishes this people and he establishes a people in a land and there's a way that they are to live. And God sits over all of them. And this is not the end of the story. He says, as you practice this lifestyle, the nations round about you will see how you're cracking on, see how you're behaving, and they will see something of God. That'd be nice if we could leave it there, but that story rolls on into what we call the New Testament. Jesus comes and he says this to the people that will follow after him initially to his disciples, but to all, all the people listening on, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God. And Jesus says in John thirteen thirty five, by this, and you'll maybe be familiar with these words, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. Jesus is saying there's something amazing and telling about my people. And he's sort of saying, it's, it's pointless God going to all of this trouble. Don't, don't hide your lamp under a bushel. It's pointless God doing all this work, establishing this people. If we're just going to hide it away, that's not the point of this people. Not just us personally, but this people. I'm going to raise a group of people and the world will look on at them. I think sometimes we maybe think, when we think about like what evangelism is, when we think about what telling other people about this faith that we have is, we kind of go, well, if I, just, if I can get them along to the event or along to the thing, or if God can act miraculously in their lives, and I think the events and the things work a treat, and I think God can work miraculously in our lives, but I think God says to us as well, through the wisdom of the Bible, says, I'm gonna establish a people and the world is gonna be pierced and the world is gonna see God when this people live together and they're gonna see him by how they act in my ways. It's gonna pierce out. So we maybe think, oh, sharing my faith is this or that, but when I look round at you people, when I think about the church more broadly, I realize that God is doing a miraculous work in that way that people will look on and see him by how we, by how we get on, by how we are forgiving towards one another, by how we look out for one another. The world's gonna be amazed, the Bible tells us by this stuff, by how we care for each other, by how we are selfless with each other. Maybe you sat there 
maybe you, this is something that you're kind of working through, you're not a Christian yet, or you, you're just kind of pulling it all together, and you're saying to yourself, it'll take a bit of a miracle. to get. I feel like it's going to take a miracle to get me over that line. I see the line, but it's going to take me a miracle to get there. Let me tell you that church, church is a bit of a miracle. You're like waiting to see something miraculous from God. Maybe you're waiting for this revelation or something. I've got to tell you that the church in and of itself that God established is a miracle. We've had 200 years of strong scientific influence telling us to believe something else. We've got huge distractions in the world that we live in today. We can have as many. We've got gadgets coming out of our ears. We've got a million other things to think about. Churches, not today, but they're mostly cold places. There's every reason for us not to be there. There's a lot of one guy at the front standing, talking to the people. Our churches are kind of ravaged by hypocrisy in the past and scandal. And we talk to you about humility and grace and forgiveness. It's a tough message. And yet, Jesus says, I'll build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is a miracle. We are a bit of a miracle, especially here where we are. So this us, this collective, is God established, and it's to show the world, the nations watching in, that there is something else to think about. Makes us think about how we are as people. And this passage talks about that. Talks about how how important it is, how significant it is that his people interact well, that they get on well. It doesn't just reflect us and our attitude. It reflects something else. We are a gospel message in and of ourselves. And so, uh, critically, I want to say that this is, what I'm going to talk to you about in this text is both, it's both a, like a high calling. Some of the things that, we, that are talked about here are, are high. They are tough to get towards. But it's also about an enabling. It's what God calls us to and the amazing thing that he can do in our lives. So let's read it through. 3.12, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That's a high bar. Bear with each other. That's a tough ask. And forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Here's what God does. Here's what his word does when we're thinking about these things. He gives us something to wear. You see that in the text? He gives us, literally, something to put on. Now, in, in Yorkshire speak, that can, when you put something on, you can, that's like faking it. It's like presenting the, the image. He doesn't ask us to fake it. it, it it's, it's like there are literal things out there that you can grab hold of and put on. And these things are compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and f- forgiveness. And he says, clothe yourselves with these things. What do we do when we clothe ourselves? When you get up in the morning and you look out the window, you think, what clothes will I wear today? When you think through the day and you think, who am I meeting later on? What kind of image do I want to present to them? You think about will I match my partner or will I not bother to match my partner on this occasion? You think about what you will wear. And this passage says, to encounter this Christian world, we get up in the morning and we get to think about what we're going to put on and we get to dress 
in compassion, kindness, patience, and forgiveness. Here's the thing, though. None of this, none of, none of this is stuff that, that we always wear, is it? None of this stuff is easy to put on, is it? When I was thinking about this, this idea of clothing ourselves in these traits of God, which are high, it's kind of like you sort of push the illustration on. It's like going to a function, it's particularly for me, it's like going to a function where we're going to have to dress up not how we would ordinarily dress. I, I, every three years I've got to buy a suit for something and I go to a tailor's and I find it desperately uncomfortable going because they're very enthusiastic to dress and they, they look you up and down. I find it all very uncomfortable and they talk like, with confidence about your appearance and they talk about what they can do with you and, how, and, and I walk into the shop and I'm there 20 minutes and, and I'm trying on like bright colored waistcoats and, and things, things that and Jude, like Jude will walk in 20 minutes into the session and she'll go something like what's what, you've went in for a suit what's you've got like five different outfits to put on and I feel like really awkward I'm like I don't want to deal with this person I can't confront them it feels a bit like that and I think this list of clothes that we can put on feels a little bit like that. It feels a little bit like, how am I ever going to, this feels a bit awkward, how am I ever going to, compassion, when you think about what it means to get up in the morning and put on compassion, you, you, you can, if you think about it as an item of clothing, you kind of think, can I ever really pull this off? I'm not always compassionate. If I start putting compassion on, my work colleagues are going to go, what's happened to him? What's happened to her? Putting on compassion, gentleness. Imagine putting that on. You kind of, that's kind of an item of clothing where you think, I could maybe wear it around the house with people that I like, that I know are not going to beat up on me. But gentleness uh, on the work, in the workplace, I, I'll get destroyed if I rock up. with gent- if, I, if I wear gentleness, so I could wear gentleness in the home, I could maybe wear it amongst my pals, but I couldn't. I couldn't wear it out in the workplace. Compassion, people would just slag me off if I started wearing compassion. Forgiveness, as an item of clothing, you go straight away, that's too expensive. That's top end. I can't afford, I just, I can't afford that. It's not me. I'll never get away with that. I could never put that on. This is how it feels, I think, sometimes to be a Christian. I know, I know there's this awesome calling. It's an awesome calling. But I just, I can't, I can't, I feel uncomfortable getting that on. Paul says to us in this text, he says that God, when we think about this, God has given us these clothes. This is not our wardrobe. God has given us this. Notice in the text that no instruction is without a promise a few words away from it. You see that in the text? No instruction from God about what we should wear comes without a promise. As a chosen people, holy and dearly loved, live with compassion. We are chosen, holy, and dearly loved, so we live with compassion. He says, bear with and forgive others. Just, you know, work out of it. No. He says, bear with and forgive others because God forgives you. Paul says to us, our capacity to do this stuff is not based on any inner strength that we have. It's not in any vats on earth. It's based directly on what we understand about the grace of God in heaven. What we can put on is not determined by how brash we can be or what we can achieve on our own, but what God 
has achieved. So this call to compassion. Compassion is like a beautiful trait, isn't it? The world was loaded with compassion. If we just if we just looked out at other people struggling and we were just kind of, and we, there was this, if everybody had it, if we all had, because it comes, it comes along momentarily, doesn't it? Imagine we just, everybody looked at other people that had a bit less and they were just overspilled with compassion. I was watching children in need and on Friday, I think it was Friday night, and I had little bursts of it, little bursts of compassion. It was well-produced TV and I was like, oh, I feel compassion for this person. I got up Saturday morning and by Sunday morning I'd forgotten all about them. It was kind of established a little bit of compassion. Our compassion isn't sourced in the good production values of children in need. We have compassion because God looked at a needy world, saw you and me like lost on our own as refugees, and he said, I love you. That sounded a bit soft, didn't it? But that's what he said. He, sounded, he said, I love you and I would do anything for you. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is it's such, like I don't always master this, but it's such a healthy thing to forgive, isn't it? Just to offer somebody a clean slate, to have a, to have a clean slate yourself. When you can properly forgive somebody, somebody really does you over, and yet you can still forgive them. You can go through your next day. It's so powerful, isn't it? It's so healthy to be able to forgive. And if the world had a bit more of that, where, you know, where would we be? Roberto Azagoli, who is a, a therapist, uh, lived, lived in Venice a couple of hundred years ago. Anyway, his quote's good, don't matter who he is. Without forgiveness, life is governed by an endless cycle of resentment and retaliation. Without forgiveness, we, we just get in a mess, don't we? Our, our forgiveness, the, the Christian's forgiveness, the church's forgiveness, is not based on, and sometimes forgiveness comes like this, doesn't it? If you're having a really good day, have you, have you ever had that? I'm having a good day, I can forgive you. Or if you start to see the person that's offended, you're turning around a bit of a new leaf, you go, all right, let's, we're working with each other, I can forgive you. That's kind of how forgiveness often works for us. Isn't it? Our forgiveness isn't based on that capacity. That's not where we generate our forgiveness from. We get our forgiveness from the fact that God looks at me, looks at us, he sees us exactly as we are, sees all the mess that's gone on, sees us at our complete worst, he sees all of that in a way that nobody else in this room will ever have seen, and he offers us complete forgiveness. That's where our forgiveness comes from. That's the hope of forgiveness that we have. Gentleness, that I don't even want to think about some days, this idea that it's not, and we think of gentleness, we think, is it about just being soft? If you dig around at the biblical word gentleness, it's like a beautiful word. It's just about real it's about being strong enough to endure. That's what gentleness is. The gentle people of this world are the strongest people. And our gentleness, our capacity to be gentle doesn't flow from some inner gentleness lotion that we can sort of pull out of the bag. You know what I mean? We, we don't just rake it out. Our gentleness comes from knowing that God, all-powerful God, strong God, could have looked at us and gone, oh, you're just laden with sin. I could crush you. And he looks at us and he doesn't do that. Instead, he sends Jesus to offer us forgiveness. These are awesome traits. These are traits I think 
can change the world. And, and yet when we think about them, we start to think about this calling and we go, oh, you think you've just put me off Christianity, Ash. I've been a Christian 20 years and I think you've managed to just put me off. That is a high calling. Listen for the last garment that he talks about. It's subtly referenced in the text, but I think he carries the an- analogy through of clothing. And this is the, if you want something for Christmas, you want to ask your partner or your friends for Christmas, ask for this last little garment. Over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. Do you see what that is? To, to my slightly bonkers mind, that's like an overcoat of love. How awesome is an overcoat of love? He's saying you've got all these other things that you, that you might be struggling to pull together. You know, you've got this look that you're thinking, oh, this is tough. Humility, kindness, gentleness. When I think about all that, my brain goes mushy. I just think there's no way I can do that. And Paul says, that's fine. Think about it like this. Put on the overcoat of love. Do you know how that works sometimes, particularly now, like in autumn? You'll be thinking about what you're going to wear. You like go out the door. Not, not particularly me, but I don't have a big coat like this. But you'll see people walking around in the big coat. It's like the save, saviour, isn't it? The big coat. People doing the supermarket run. You'll have shoes and the jeans out and you'll have the top out and you'll be thinking, it doesn't quite work. I know what I'll do. I'll put on a big overcoat. The overcoat of love. Think about that. If you want to, that's, that's your takeaway. Forget the rest of the sermon. Think about the overcoat of love. You'll be able to piece it together back from there. The overcoat of love, this idea that, the, that God loves us and so that you can love. And that, that'll kind of get you there. Paul doesn't say in this text, you've got to do this to be saved. That's not what this text is about. But Paul does say, and this is the real scary bit, Paul does say, this is possible. Paul doesn't say, do this, you've got to do this, you've got to tick these boxes or you're not saved. But he does say, man, this is possible for you. If you're driven by what Jesus has done and then the world will see it. So that's the first thing. He gives us something to wear. The second thing is the last thing. And because I'm from the 90s, I chose this word. He gives us a vibe. That's probably, if you're from the 90s, that's the kind of word that we use. He gives us a, yeah, if you raised eyebrows there, what's a vibe? If you're a millennial, like no idea what a vibe is. He gives us a spirit of collaboration. So read through verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Do you see what he says in there? You can have this little community, God's people, you can have peace. You can know real peace. Not, not, just, not just like a good five minutes where everything's quiet and you can sort of gather your thoughts. But peace with God, peace with the whole cosmos, peace with everything. Everything can sort of fall into place and everything can make sense. And, the place, and you're not just going to experience that on your own. This is the vibe that we're talking about. What Paul's saying here is you can all have that. You can be, in a, you can be amongst a bunch of people. Imagine being in that room. You kind of are in that room. Imagine being in that room where everyone's on the page that they go, oh man, yes, God has resolved things in such a way that I can have peace with the whole universe. The second bit of the vibe is that we live in a community. So if you read, read through the words, it's, 
It's, a, it's an interesting thing to imagine. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. On the one, on the one level, you think that's just a bit weird. It doesn't happen to me. I don't burst into song very often. But if we look underneath what's happening there, you've got, these, you've got a bunch of people who kind of organically without taking offense the whole time, are able to sort of be wise with one another. I mean, it puts it here that they burst into song. I'd love if I'm at the door at the end, somebody's got a correction for me and just burst into song. That would be awesome. I would, I would welcome that. But you see the community there? You see how awesome that is? They're not beating each other up, but kind of organically and without taking offense, they're kind of helping each other out, spurred on by wisdom. This is a... This passage of scripture is an awesome sounding community. It makes Central Perk getting a nice coffee and some good canned laughter, living a good lifestyle. It makes that sound positively dull. Church, when you think about it like this, just sounds amazing. Just, it's like utopic. It sounds incredible. And you say to yourself, I guess, why don't, why don't I experience that then? Why is that? Why has that not been my experience of church here or wherever else I've been? Is it because it's cold ordinarily? Is it because the preacher goes on and misses the point? Is it because church has done such bad things in the past it can't really ever forgive itself, so it just can't get to this point? The text has got two really interesting triggers for us. I think it says, "Let's let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, and let the message of Christ." dwell among you richly. In order for this stuff to be possible, it says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Let the message of Christ dwell amongst you richly. It means that somebody that's in my position who's got to try and preach this has to sort of project that question to you. What rules your heart? It's a killer question, isn't it? What, what governs the inside of you? What is your big story? What, what, what on the drive home today will be the thing that really cuts you in there and if you're driving home with somebody else will be the first thing that you talk to them about? What's your big story? This is what the Bible says. It, it says that these things will govern your capacity to enjoy this community. And Paul pleads with the church at Colossae and he says, let it be that your hearts are ruled by the story of Christ and the love of Christ. Let it be that that rules them. Let it be that your conversation and your story is the gospel story, that story that you know about forgiveness. Let it be that story that's the main story. It's a hugely high bar. We're enabled, but it's a wonderfully high bar. When you think about such a... We have this high calling, and always at the same time, we have a savior who models a higher calling to us. Uh, my second cousin, she's called uh, Joanna Butterfield. You probably won't know her, who she is, but if you Googled her, you'd find her. She's just flown back from the World Athletics Championships in Doha, I think, somewhere like that. My cousin, Joe, who I, sorry, it's a bit of a name drop. I'm happy to drop a name. It's my only name drop I've got. I don't, I, I don't see her. At all. The last time I saw her in person, she had just um, she just had a cyst removed from her spine, 
It was a benign cyst, and uh, it meant that she was paralyzed. So she, she, was, she was a cracking footballer, Joe, and she had the cyst removed, and she was paralyzed. And I was with Jude and two, two others of our friends, and we were in the top floors of some tenements in Glasgow. And uh, so I felt a bit pathetic. I kind of knew something was going on with Joe, but then I rocked up, and I met her, and she's in a... She's in a um, well, she was just sat down on the couch, actually, and I knew something was wrong. And then she left. So we, us and the friend stayed, and Joe left. And she left, and there was no lift in this tenement. And I remember her kind of hobbling to the floor. She said, oh, my wheelchair's on the bottom floor. And she, like, slouched down all of the stairs. It was... In, it was and I, was, I had that moment where I was like, oh, man, you're my cousin. And then I know this has happened to you, and I've not been keeping up with it. And that was the last time. That's, that's still the last time I saw Joe in person. The next time I was going to see her... She was on um, Channel 4's coverage of the Paralympics. And she was throwing the hammer, and she threw it, and she broke the world record. And she won Olympic gold at the Paralympics. And I was just bl blown away, completely blown away. And my, sometimes my glass is half full, and sometimes I think I can do anything, and sometimes my glass is half empty, and I think I can't do anything. But whenever I think about... Whenever I start to think, well, I can't do anything, I think about my cousin Joe, and I think about the last time that I saw her and her slouching down those stairs, and the next time that I saw her, she was winning Olympic gold medal. And I think, well, maybe, maybe I can cut the grass. Maybe I can do this or that or the other. When we start to think about what church is, the demands it puts on us, the high calling that God gives us, we just look at it and we go, man, there's just no, there's just no way, and yet... When we look at what Jesus did, when we stop and think about that story, when we remember that story, we remember that journey to the cross, we remember that selfless love, all of a sudden, the high bar of church that I think can change the world suddenly becomes a bit more possible.